Welcome to the Movement Church Podcast. Our vision is to be a movement of people finding their way back to God. We want to be a place where you can own your faith and take next steps in your relationship with Jesus. Maybe your next step is to seek out a community and join a movement group. Maybe it's supporting movement financially for the first time or using your gifts on a volunteer team. Whatever God is calling you to do, our prayer is that you will step out in faith and let Him lead you. For more information about your next step, please visit movementcolumbus.com. Oh, if only that story was true, I wish it was, because that would be pretty amazing if that's all I had to do to get a favorite passage to teach. But uh, you know that feeling that you get when you know that you're like unqualified for something? Like I remember when I first asked my wife out, I felt that way. And she said, yes, praise God. We went on a date. I asked her if she'd go on a second date with me. She said, yes. I was like, praise God, this is amazing. It's a miracle because... She's obviously gorgeous and I love her. But then uh, she said yes. And uh, I got a, got a phone call the next day from her uh, saying, hey, I haven't slept all night, Trig. And I said, oh no, why is that? And she's like, because I just don't feel right. I can't go out with you. I actually, I don't want to go out with you at all. But uh, that's just kind of how the story ended. But obviously she's my wife. So you guys know the end of the story. But in between that was actually a second time after she had explicitly told me, I don't want to go out with you, uh, where I had to actually ask her out again. And it was that moment where you're just like, ooh, I... I feel kind of unqualified, but there's also another moment that I can think of in my life. It was 10 months ago when our daughter was first born where I just held this precious baby in uh, my arms and any parent in this room knows that feeling as well, that it's just like, what am I doing? Like, I'm unqualified for this. And in a lot of ways, that's how I feel this evening, not this morning, because we've been in the book of Romans. We've been taking a 10,000 foot flyover over the book of Romans. We're hitting some highlights. And if all of scripture is this mountain range of different topographies, then the book of Romans is Mount Everest. And if the book of Romans is Mount Everest, then Romans chapter eight is the apex. It's the summit of Mount Everest. And so I just feel humbled that I even get to touch some of these words. So if you want to open up your Bibles, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8. I'm going to be reading from the New International Version, uh, and we're going to be reading from verses 18 to 30. I highly recommend you read the rest of the chapter for context. You read the rest of the book. I promise it will bless your life. And before we do and hop in, I just will you just pray with me, uh, and let's invite God into the space. Father... We thank you for your words. We, we thank you that every time that we open your word, that it doesn't return void, that it actually does something to us if we would be humble enough to let it. And so I pray that whatever you want this passage to do in our lives, through your spirit, by your spirit, transform us, renew us, and restore us. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. All right, Paul gives it all away in the first verse, and he summarizes what he's all about to say right here. He says this in verse 18. It's on the screen behind me if you need to look there too. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship 
the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray. This is amazing right here, guys. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for people's gods or God's people in accordance with the will of God. 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Just think about that for a second. For those that God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Okay, I need us to buckle in a little bit this evening. We're actually, we're going to go somewhere and we're going to get there, but first we kind of got to tread through some deeper waters because what Paul is talking about here is suffering and then the glory that will be revealed after suffering. And so we're kind of going to fly over this passage in three big, broad brushstrokes. We're going to talk about why and the fact that we suffer now. We're going to talk about the fact that we have a glory to look forward to. And we're going to also talk about that with the fact that we actually have hope in the meantime as well. You know, we don't talk a whole lot about suffering in the church, at least not as much as we should. And I don't know that there is a piece of literature on the planet earth that is more comforting to a suffering people than Romans chapter eight. And you heard me correctly. I don't mean just passage in the Bible. I mean piece of literature, especially, and I would say only if you are a Christ follower. Because can I just be honest sometimes? Maybe it's this last year, but it's not just this last year, because let's be honest, we all know that life is tough at times. And if it weren't for this passage, first of all, I'd want to quit my job like weekly. It's just hard, man. People are broken and I'm broken and we suffer. And so sometimes... If I'm honest, and you probably know this feeling too, we just want to hit eject on life. But then I read this passage, my heart moves back to life as I read the words that God is not surprised and he has not abandoned us in our suffering. And the reason that God has not abandoned us in our suffering in this last year, especially, and in life in general is because of verses 20 to 23. So let's start with some bad news. But some necessary news, you will suffer in life. And the word that Paul uses here to describe suffering is this word groan. He uses it three times. And it's this intense sound of pain and agony. And it's the sound of birth pains. That's what Paul says. Dads, you know these groans. (laughs) Moms, you especially know these groans. But these aren't just regular birth groans because I want you to think about the first century here. Paul is writing to a church that is experiencing giving birth to children in a time with no epidurals, no painkillers, no modern medicine. And many, many women would die in childbirth. And so these aren't just regular birth groans. These are death groans. Mallory and I had our daughter 10 months ago and I witnessed the woman that I love most in this world go through the most excruciating pain that I've ever witnessed a human go through in my entire life for 14 and a half hours. I was physically and spiritually and emotionally exhausted. 
just watching her. And I can't imagine what she was going through. And yet this is the very words, how peculiar is this, that Paul would choose to use in this passage to describe the pain and the suffering that our world is experiencing right now. The entire world that God created, us included, is frustrated. It's groaning because of verse 21. It's in bondage to decay. It's decaying. It's dying. And therefore, it's groaning. And it's groaning and decaying and dying because all of creation has been infected with this tumor and this cancer that we all have called sin. Paul reminds us actually earlier in the book in chapter three that the wages of this sin is death, which is the reason that all of creation is decaying and dying. And because of that, it's in the throes of these birth pains. And I don't know if you look at the world this way. I don't know if you look at the world this way, but just listen to it. If you turn on the news, you can hear that our world is groaning, that our country right now is groaning, that cities are groaning, suburbs are groaning, black people are groaning, white people are groaning, the hood is groaning, gated communities are groaning, families are groaning, marriages are groaning, people are groaning because they are in immense pain and suffering from this tumor. It's called sin. And a pastor that I really admire once said, Wouldn't it be nice if Paul right there said, but we who are Christians, we don't groan. (laughs) But that's not what he says. In fact, he doubles down in verse 23. He says, we who have the first fruits of the spirit, we too groan. We are not exempt, you Christian, from the immense pain and suffering that this world has. And every single one in this room at some point in their life will go through that. Some of you are going through it right now. Some of you are going, praise God that his word says this in a weird way. It's comforting to you because he acknowledges it. He notices it. He does not abandon you. And see, COVID-19 doesn't light a candle to this disease doesn't even light a candle. It's the tip of the iceberg. And see, this flies in the face of every Christian that would tell you that if you just follow Jesus, your whole life will be perfect, full of roses, or the health, wealth, and prosperity teachers that tell you if you just pray the right prayer, if you just have enough faith, if you just put enough seed money in the basket, God will take care of your problems. He wants to, but the world is decaying and dying. And so, You can take a deep breath right now. God sees, God knows, and he has not abandoned you. And this is why we did house churches this whole last year. And this is why we are meeting again on Sunday nights. And we will not stop meeting because the church is not a dispendable commodity. It is an ICU for broken and groaning people. Before you think I'm getting political, We are not letting political trash in here. This is about scripture. This is about what God's word says. We need the church because we're groaning. Your job will not save you. The new house that you bought won't save you. Your spouse can't save you. Your kids can't save you. The right 401k can't save you. Botox won't save you. A vaccine won't save you 
from the fact that all of the world, regardless, is descending and decaying into this death. I'm not saying that you shouldn't get the vaccine, okay? So I don't want an email after this saying, you said you shouldn't get a vaccine. That's not what I'm saying. But it can't save you from the fact that you will die. Why? Because all of creation is groaning. And you know what's interesting about these groans though? When a woman gives birth, she isn't just groaning aimlessly. She's groaning for something. And actually Jesus has something to say about this. Who is comforted that at least the women in the room, that Jesus has something to say about childbirth. He says this in John chapter 16. I think it's John chapter 16. Uh, Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. (laughs) Who Who knows that's true as a woman? I don't think any woman, after what I watched my wife go, I certainly wouldn't go through having another child if this weren't true, what Jesus was saying. But I, I think a lot of women would probably say the same thing. But Jesus is saying, and then he, uh, he gives the explanation for the metaphor. He says, so you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Then you will rejoice and no one can rob you of that joy. <laughs> Jesus is saying, moms, they groan to bring forth this child into the world. But then the joy of holding that newborn baby so supersedes and obliterates any notion of the pain that they just had that they forget. I mean, this has to be true. Look at how many people are in this room. (laughs) The whole world groans, but only Christians groan for something. We groan for restoration. We groan for that rebirth. We groan for renewal. We groan for glory. I consider that these present sufferings are not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. You know, glory is a funny word. In the Bible, it was used to describe something heavy, weighty, priceless, perfect. God is perfectly glorious in and of himself. And God creates the cosmos and the universe and the earth and even us ourselves in this perfect glory to reflect his glory. But only the crown jewel of creation, humanity, did he give the opportunity to have the distinct privilege to be image bearers of God, to reflect that glory perfectly. But when we choose to go our own way, when we bring sin into our lives, we forfeited that privilege of reflecting God's perfect glory. And so this is why we groan, because everyone in this room knows what it feels like to have an ache or pain in their body. That's a signal that you are made for something more. Everyone in this room looks at their, has looked at themselves in a mirror someday and wished that they looked a certain way, that they were a certain way, that their body didn't have the issues that it had. And that's because you were made for something more, that you were made to be perfect. Your body is groaning for something. In fact, this is exactly the glory that Paul talks about in verse 23. He says, we groan for adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. And this word redeem in the Bible is this idea, this redemption is to be bought back and glory and redemption, they're always tightly correlated. And every single heart in this room, I would argue, regardless of being a Christian or not, is hardwired for loving redemption and for glory. It's built into us. It's the plot line that sells the most movies. It's the sports um, story that captures the most hearts, this redemption through glory, this redemption for glory. Our hearts were created for it. Raise your hand if you're a golf fan. (laughs) Uh, Way more this, uh, 
way more this, this. We had two people raise their hand for a service. It was blasphemous. But um, that being aside, we have the holier group here. Uh, if you know golf, and even if you don't know golf, you know the name Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods is arguably not just one of the greatest golfers, if not the greatest golfer ever to live. I know we're in Columbus, so everyone's like, Jack Nicklaus. But um, he might even be the greatest athlete of all time. And I remember as a kid watching this golfer absolutely decimate everybody that he played. Tiger Woods could not lose. He had a spotless golf career, it seemed like, and he also had this spotless public image. And anyone that knows the story of Tiger Woods knows that that spotless image eventually comes absolutely crashing down. And I'm not sure that I've ever seen somebody fall from grace the way that Tiger Woods did. He went from spotless one day to a drug-addicted, sex-addicted, broken man in front of the entire world. And then to add insult into literal injury, his body began to literally decay after he won in 2008. But Tiger came back. A few years later, 11 years later to be exact, Tiger Woods was back at the Masters. For those of you that know what the Masters tournament is, it's the greatest golf tournament that the world has ever seen. It's played at Augusta National Golf Course down in Georgia, and it's played every April. And the greatest golfers in the world play there. And Tiger had won a few times, and so he had a lifetime exemption to be able to play in the tournament. And Tiger was back, and nobody expected him to compete, let alone win. And I remember watching that week as Tiger was kind of in the middle of the pack, and everyone was kind of surprised that he was doing as well as he was. And then by the third day, he was in a few stroke, within a few strokes of the lead. And by the time he teed off on the final round on Sunday, which is the last round of the golf tournament, Tiger was within a couple strokes of winning the tournament. And by the time he took the turn onto the back nine, he was right there. And by the time that he hit the 18th green, by the time he was walking up the 18th fairway, Tiger was leading the masters and was on the verge of winning yet again. And I remember as the world watched, Jim Nance was on the call. He's one of the greatest sports announcers of all time. And there was this buzz. Jim Nance didn't even say anything because the moment was so big and so pregnant. And here comes Tiger up to the 18th green. And he's got to make a two-putt to win the Masters. And they panned around the crowd. Everyone knew he was going to do it. And women and men alike were weeping. And I looked to my left, my sweet wife, who doesn't even care about golf, and she was weeping. I looked to my right, to my stoic dad, and he had some tears running down his face. The puck goes in. Tiger Woods has won the Masters. And Jim Jim Nance said four words, and then he was silent for five minutes. He said these four words, and these four words only, the return to glory. And I was thinking about it this week. Why in that moment was everyone's heart so attached to this moment of watching 43-year-old Tiger Woods, who hadn't won a major tournament in 11 years, win the Masters again? It's because we know we are all Tiger. 
And we just want to so desperately believe, whether we're a Christian or not, that God can take the absolute colossal mess of our lives, the sin, the brokenness, the ways that we're not the way that we should be, and turn it into something beautiful, return to glory. Our hearts are made for it. Our hearts are designed for it. And so we know it when we see it, and they sing as they see it. We see ourselves. Tiger's story was redeemed. It was bought back into its former glory. And we identify with it because it's a microchasm of our own stories. Maybe we didn't have the money that Tiger had. Maybe we didn't have the fame that Tiger had. But we make a mess of our lives too. And we just so desperately want it to be true that it can be redeemed, restored as well. I consider the present sufferings are not worth comparing to the future glory that will be revealed in us. And here's the promise of the passage. If you're a Christian right now, you can be sure as heck that you will win the masters metaphorically. Except unlike the masters, which you have to win over and over and over again every single year to retain that glory, God promises that if you put his, your faith in him, that he will make you glorious for all of eternity. But there's actually a path to this glory. Tiger had a path to this glory. We all have a path as Christians to this glory, and it's an unorthodox one, and it always leads through suffering. If you back up in the passage to the verse right before the one that we started with in verse 17, I think it'll be on the screen behind me. It says this, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Look what he says. It's right there. We share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. And if you want proof that you're living a spirit-filled life, I would argue that you share in the sufferings of Christ. Paul writes in Philippians, I want to know the power of the resurrection and I want to have fellowship with the sufferings of Christ. The disciple Peter wrote in one of his books, don't think it's strange if you're suffering, but rejoice that you get to be like Jesus and that in those sufferings, you see his glory. Or in Corinthians, Paul actually says that our current troubles produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs our sufferings that will last forever because the things we see now will not last, but the things we cannot see will last forever. Jesus's path always goes through suffering. His path has to be our path. Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. Jesus also says, for those of you that lose their life for my sake will gain it. For what is it? For one man to gain the entire world and yet lose his very soul. Two things real quick. What I am not saying, and do not let the enemy say this to you right now, is that if you're not suffering, you're not a Christian, or that if you are a Christian and you're not suffering, you should go pursue suffering for suffering's sake. God does not want you to have a martyrdom complex. Jesus has already died for you. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that if you choose to follow Jesus, following Jesus' path demands sacrifice. It demands sacrifice. And it will inevitably cause you to be inconvenienced or discomforted, at least at the least, and maybe even endure pain and suffering at some point in your life. And this is exactly why Jesus says, count the cost to every single one of his disciples. Count the cost because he knows that he's asking the disciples to do something that's going to cost them something. And this matters. 
It matters right now in 21st century America because we might not be persecuted today. We might not be persecuted in 10 years, but there is coming a time that the American church will be persecuted. But if your faith hasn't cost you anything, the price for you to walk away won't be much either. If your faith hasn't cost you anything, the price for you to walk away won't be anything either. And can I be honest? Sometimes we, and I'm included in this, don't want to be inconvenienced by Christ, let alone suffer for him. Inconvenienced by one hour on a Sunday night. Inconvenienced by sharing life with our movement group. Inconvenienced by God having some sort of priority in our finances. And if I were a prophet, and I'm not, I would dare to say that the American church has gotten a little bit soft. We've become so comfortable with this half intact Jesus onto the side of our lives, lukewarm, conveniency and comfort-driven Christianity that I would argue is nothing compared to the Christianity that we see in the Bible. It hasn't cost us anything. Or maybe it just hasn't cost us very much. This isn't to shame us. We should praise God that we get to be here and worship right now. This is an amazing thing. It's a gift of God's grace. But sometimes I don't think that we recognize the situation that we're in. I read a story recently about a man and his wife who lived in an Islamic country that was closed off to Christians. And it was so closed off to Christians that if they found out that you're a Christian, you'd be beaten if you were a man, you'd be raped if you're a woman until you were able to, they were able to expel information about other Christians in that region and use that to go persecute other Christians. This was recently. And he and his wife would pray daily as they loved Jesus and as they were planning hello house churches that were underground in this Islamic closed country. And they would pray every single day, Lord, tell us people that we could share our faith with because for them, uh, Paul's scripture, to live is Christ, to die is gain, is to, was made real to their hearts. And they would pray with one another every single day, knowing that this might be the last time that they saw each other. And a few years later, this is where the story takes an even more disturbing twist. They had an opportunity to come to America and to live here. And they took that opportunity. They were so excited. They got here. They lived here for a few years. And eventually the wife went to the husband and she said, I don't feel comfortable living in America anymore. And he said, why? And listen to what she said. She said, it's like there's this satanic lullaby playing here in America. And it's like the Christians are asleep. And I feel like I'm falling asleep too. Please, let's go back. Man, that hit me like a dagger in my heart. I needed that so badly this week because again, we shouldn't hope and wish for that situation. But I think it begs the question, are we asleep at the wheel of our faith? Because I am convinced that death is not the greatest enemy to our faith, but it's this lazy, lethargic, indifferent Christianity that is so popular today. How sleepy are we? How sleepy are you? How sleepy am I? Because if our lives and our priorities don't look anything different than the neighbors up the street who aren't Christians, then we might need to wake up because if your faith hasn't cost you anything, the price won't be very high for you to walk away either. But here's the beautiful thing, guys. 
if we lean into the things that God is doing in our life through these painful experiences, it has the opportunity to wake us up and be the alarm clock that wakes us up. Because only in life have I been humbled and broken and weakened to the point of knowing that I actually need a savior, that the things of this world cannot fill me, that I don't have it all together. Sometimes suffering is the only thing in life that makes me feel weakness, that makes me feel absolutely desperate for Jesus, and we are desperate. But prosperity and comfort can be the satanic lullaby that just says, shh, shh, you got enough, you got enough money, you don't need Jesus, shh, you got enough comfort right there in the palm of your hand, and on that Netflix screen, you don't need to take your wounds to Jesus. Just scroll through Instagram. Just buy one more thing. Go grab a beer. Shh. Make yourself comfortable. You don't need Jesus. Just marry the right person. They'll save you. Shh. Mm-mm. We're going to wake up. And I could think of two extraordinarily painful circumstances in my life. One before I was a Christian and the other after I was a Christian that God used to wake me up. I'm not going to go into deep detail, but before I was a Christian, I got arrested multiple times for different things. One of them was a DUI, and by God's grace, I didn't hit anybody. Thank God, I could have killed somebody, and I didn't. Praise God. But I remember in that moment being in extraordinarily pain. I was humiliated, and yet God, when I look back, used that moment to turn me back to him, to break my legs so I couldn't run any farther. He used the suffering that I invited into my own life for his good and his glory. And some of you right now are going through pain in your own lives as well. Some pain that you've invited in that is due to your sin, and God wants to use that to wake you up. The second circumstance is my battle with clinical anxiety. I'm not ashamed of it. It's happened since I was a, a, a Christian. And in the deepest, darkest pits of the soul that is anxiety, I have found only comfort in the fact that the only thing that I can rely on is not how much money I make, not anything about my status, not anything about how the world says that I should identify myself, but only in the love of Jesus and the fact that he has not abandoned me. One I didn't ask for, the other one I brought into my life, both were suffering and both God used for his good and his glory. And see, only when we see that, only when we see that will our suffering become, in a strange way, our treasure. It becomes our glory. And it can only become our glory because Christ went through it first. Let's read 28 as we conclude. And we know, Paul says, I just want this verse to sink in because I know my heart doesn't believe it. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined. Here's the key right here, to be conformed to the image of his son. Why? That he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. 
Anyone in this room that is a firstborn or knows a firstborn knows that they generally have the same pioneering spirit, right? They're gonna go after their world. They're gonna get it. And most younger kids love to look up to their older siblings. In fact, uh, a lot of times in life, just the older sibling going through something before the younger sibling is enough to bring them comfort and security in them doing it themselves. So let me give you an example. When my uh, sister Grace went off to college, I remember I was super uh, uh, nervous about going to college, but Grace had been to college first. And so I found comfort in the fact that she had went before me. And uh, this, in a small way, is what Paul is saying here in this passage. He's saying that Jesus, look it, is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. He went before us. He's the big brother that we've always wanted. And what that means is that Jesus was our big brother who went through every suffering we could ever imagine before us so that right now, regardless of what you're going through, you can have comfort that Jesus doesn't just sympathize with you, but he empathizes with you. Have you ever been betrayed? Jesus has been betrayed. Cancel culture has nothing on what they did to Jesus. Have you ever been mocked? Jesus was. Have you ever felt abandoned by God? Jesus did. Have you ever felt so much pain that you didn't even know what to say? You didn't even have words to say. Jesus did first. Have you ever had a friend betray you? Jesus did first. Have you ever been crucified? I haven't, but Jesus was. So he knows every single pain. Big brother Jesus went there before us. But big brother Jesus isn't just our firstborn in suffering, but big brother Jesus is our big brother in glory. But standing between Jesus and us was death. And so for us to get that glory, big brother Jesus had to get in a fight that he knew his younger siblings couldn't get in. And Jesus took a couple on the chin for you and for me. And he was beaten and he was bloodied and he was killed for you and for me because of our sin, because we couldn't win that battle. And in the grave, he beat the hell, and I mean the hell, out of death. And he rose again. Thank you. One amen. It's okay. You're forgiven. (laughs) But because of this, because of this, everything that now happens after the cross, we get two. Jesus was resurrected, so we will be two. Big brother Jesus is sinless, so we will be one day as well. Big brother Jesus experiences all the perfection and love of a perfect relationship with God the Father, and we will too, because big brother Jesus did and does. And only then will we understand that we groan. We groan like a woman in the throes of childbirth. Not just because we're in pain, but because there is something so magnificent and so beautiful coming. And this is the gospel that labor pains lead to life, that the cross leads to a resurrection, that broken relationships will be restored, that our bodies will be renewed, that the decaying earth will be made new. If God can take the ugly of the cross and make it into a trophy of his grace. He can take whatever mess you have made in your lives and bring glory to it. All you got to do is say, Lord, 
I got nothing left. And weirdly, suffering sometimes is the only tool that God can use to wake us up. Wake up. I consider that our present sufferings not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. I'll end with this. C.S. Lewis, the writer of the Chronicles of Narnia, was also a deep thinker and lover of God after he had converted from atheism. And he wrote a book called The Weight of Glory. (laughs) It's all about what we're talking about tonight. And in that book, he started talking about what Christians might be like someday. And he wrote this. Remember that the most uninteresting, dullest person that you can talk to today may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, you'd be so tempted to just bow down and worship to it. You love that. That one day, the ugliest, most uninteresting person that you have seen, if they're Christian, might be so beautiful You'd be tempted to bow down and worship. That's how perfect they're going to be. That's how perfect you're going to be. That's how perfect I'm going to be. And so you can compare a cup of water to the ocean. You can compare a mile to the circumference of the earth. You can even compare our solar system to the galaxies. But Paul says, our sufferings right now, it's not even worth it, guys. It's not even worth comparing. Trash the glory that will be revealed in us. That, my friends, is the hope of the gospel. Tell me, who has that hope? Nobody but us. Nobody. Let's pray. Father, you know how desperately we need to know your love and not be ashamed. Your word reminds us there is no condemnation for those that are in you, Lord. And so I pray that this would not be a message of condemnation, but it would be a message of conviction that our lives would change because of it, but it would be, um, it would be for your glory that they do so, Lord. I pray for anyone that's suffering right now that they would be comforted by this message, but I also pray for anybody that isn't, that they would know that your love is just as good regardless of the circumstance. Lord, we thank you for the words of Paul that speak life into our hearts by your spirit today. And we pray that they continue to do work in our lives this week, in our marriages, in our workplaces. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Movement Church Podcast. Our vision is to be a movement of people finding their way back to God. We hope wherever you are, this message encourages you to take the next step in your relationship with Jesus. For more information about Movement Church, including attending a worship experience, getting connected, or to give online, please visit movementcolumbus.com.